I'll cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Critical Oxygen Podcast, where we help you optimize your physiology and maximize your athletic potential. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we are joined by continuing guest host, Dr. Robbie Jacobs, where we're going to be talking about the predictors of endurance performance. Robbie, welcome back to the show. Um, so right before we started recording and everything, uh, we had been talking about how, uh, you know, kind of how as researchers and scientists, we don't actually know as much as we think we know. Um, so I want to bring us back to that conversation. Cause I think it's really important for everybody to kind of get on the same page of like, yes, as researchers, we are trying to validate these ideas that we have, and we're trying to take this theory and, you know, get it to the applied side of things. But I think it's important to note that, you know, one study does not prove a, a hypothesis, right? A hypothesis can never be proven. It can really only be falsified. So we're always in this uphill battle of trying to, do good research and get it validated a little bit more towards more populations as we go. Well, and then when you introduce the world of probability, because mm -hmm. science also exists in the world of probability, what's the probability that this is going to happen? And when we hear statistical significance, it's usually some level of probability that we've designated is meaningful in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But probability depends on a host of factors, and especially the deeper you get into biological context, context and variability, sometimes it's so overwhelming that sometimes I really wonder how accurate the knowledge that I think I know even is. Yeah. Well, and the good thing is, is that you know we have. That's why we have multiple people doing multiple studies on, right, on these sure. sort of things. Cause then, then our chances of, of discovering false positives are, are reduced. And you know, the, I can't remember what type of error it is, is reduced. Um, and you know, it's like, like, Oh, well the, the cutoff of statistical significance is normally 0 0.05, but what happens if something is 0 0.05000000001, right? Technically, from a statistical standpoint, it's not significant, but that doesn't mean that it's a pretty high probability, like we're talking about, that it is still true in the context of whatever study we're, we're doing. So that was actually something that I, that I loved about my PhD with, with Matt and Sean was that, and those were my advisors um, at Oregon State, for those of you who don't know, um, was that especially uh, Dr. Matt Robinson, he was always really good at being like, okay, well, yeah, maybe this study wasn't the best design study. Maybe the, maybe the stats weren't, you know, as perfect as we'd like them to be, but what can we learn from it? And, and what can we take away from it? And that's always something that I have to remind myself because at, like we were talking about earlier, it's really easy to sit up here in our uh, porcelain or okay, would it be a porcelain throne or a, <laughs> <laughs> it would it be a porcelain throne? That's a bathroom joke. Oh, dang. <laughs> Coming in hot. <laughs> Most people probably would refer to it as a porcelain, th I, yeah. a porcelain tower these days rather yeah. than the ivory tower. The ivory tower. That's what it is. So most of us are sitting up in our ivory tower and, you know, we're, we're like, really good at picking apart these studies, right? They're like, oh, well, they only use 12 people and, you know, they're all elite level athletes. So there's no application to, to non-trained athletes because we don't know, or, well, why didn't they, you know, increase their intervention to 
to 54 months or some, you know, something like that. And there's limitations to, to what we can do in research. A lot of the limitations come down to money. And I think, you know, you can attest to this. Like when, when we were doing my study in my master's degree, we didn't have any funding. So we had to do all of our research on the weekends. And, you know, essentially we had, we only could get people who understood the value of say VO2 max testing and, uh, you know, physiological testing. Um, so that really limited our ability to actually recruit a wide array of people, right? We were, we were definitely biased in terms of the people that we got and they were very good athletes, but it's all, yeah. Like if people read, read that study and we'll go over it, I think in the next couple of episodes, but you know, we, we definitely have a non-representative population of, of people, you know, if we're, if we're trying to expand what were our, our conclusions were, um, you know, to like a national level or something along those lines. Yeah, we tried. I mean, we, we wanted to, right. The one, mm -hmm. the one requisite is they had to be active, but the more we, people we could have recruited, yeah, the better we could apply the knowledge that we find from the study. That's so true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so, so the bottom line for all of that is that we as researchers, you know, are, we're still experts in the field, but we recognize that, you know, the stuff that we know now, it could be totally different in 10 years based on, you know, new studies coming out based on new understandings of how say molecular mechanisms interact with each other. Um, and it's, it's just one of those things where I think, I think that's the mark of, you know, like a, a good problem solver doesn't have to be a scientist because, you know, I, I take it, we're, we're talking to, you know, people out there who are coaches, who are athletes, who are just generally in, interested, um, in this, in this sort of stuff. And, but I think, you know, we can, we can all, what we can do is we can apply our critical thinking caps to whatever it is that we're being taught and ask questions, ask intelligent questions about what's going on and then make conclusions based on all the aggregate data that's coming out. You know, for example, right. If, if a study came out that was like, Oh, here's the optimal training plan, but then it, and it was like an optimal training plan for like, you know, a hundred people, something like that. But if you're the type of person, if you're a coach and you have an athlete who's like, Oh, I absolutely, absolutely hate doing what that type of training plan is, then there's no way that that is the best training plan for that athlete. Right. So, so we have to, we have to, we have to take, you know, from the science and say, okay, Hey, this is, this is good science right here. But then you also have to know your athlete and you have to know yourself and you have to say, well, does it make sense in this context to be able to apply it? Yeah. It's overwhelming, huh? It, it, it is a little bit, but I think, you know, I think the, at the end of the day, it kind of empowers everybody to, you know, be able to make, make your own decisions on things, um, in a world where a, a lot of the times you're, you're told what to think. Um, so, so I want, so that's where, you know, I want to provide, you know, like links to research and, um, you know, papers for people to, uh, to actually read, right. Um, we're going to be going over a few papers today and, you know, probably a few papers, every single, uh, every single podcast episode that we record, 
And I want to make those papers as available as I possibly can to people without, you know, stepping on uh, copywriting uh, issues and stuff. But, as long as they're open access, you shouldn't have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's for the most part, that's what I'm going to be sharing. Um, but then I want to like, then we're going to talk about it. We're going to give, you know, kind of our lens, our context with it. And then, you know, it's kind of on you to either take, take that with whatever, however large of a grain of salt you, you need to take it, uh, take that with. And then, you know, if you need to dig into more, you know, go out and actually read the research or read the papers because, you know, maybe our, maybe our lens from, <laughs> let's be honest, like Dr. Jacobs and I are very, uh, skeletal muscle focused. And sometimes it's hard to see the muscle through the mitochondria, um, hmm. as it were. <laughs> very true. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I just wanted to get everybody kind of on the same page, empower you all to, you know, ask questions, read the articles, make your own, you know, conclusions, but you know, if you're reading something, don't be, don't be so quick to just, uh, crap on it and just be like, this is worthless. Dismiss or accept, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Be skeptical, um, mm -hmm. scrutinize. And, and there are a host of people that are like, I don't want to think for myself. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. We'll do our best and try to provide, you know, direction as best we understand it. But this is a, a process, a continual process that everybody's trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. And as we figure more out, our recommendations or suggestions may change, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and okay, so so with that, let's talk about predictors of performance where we know everything. Yeah. <laughs> no, not really. But um, the the first topic that I really wanted us to focus on was, was predictors of endurance performance, because I think it's really important for us as coaches, athletes, researchers to really understand what our general understanding of what physiologically makes somebody better at endurance sports compared to somebody else. There's been what a hundred, almost, I mean, a hundred plus years of research recognizing these different predictors of performance, trying to explain, oh, you know, why is somebody capable of running a, a 205 marathon and then another person is only capable of running a four-hour marathon? So um, I thought that was a good place for all of us to start. And then we can, you know, kind of jump down the rabbit hole of like the the physiological underpinnings of exercise, the adaptation response, the molecular pathways that are activated in order to get us these better predictors. Um, and it's really what got me interested in the line of research that I, that I went into, especially during my master's degree and into my, and into my PhD, because we still had, you know, those concepts present, but, um, yeah. So, and I think that it's near and dear to your heart too, Robbie, are the predictors of performance. Totally. And, and it's because a lot of my work exists in this realm um, as silly as sometimes it is, right? Because we try to strip apart some pretty complex systems into the most basic components. Um, and in doing something, it's reductionistic. Mm -hmm. And often when being so reductionist, you lose sight of the biological nuance to other things that are associated or supporting or assisting some of these primary uh biological characteristics that we tend to focus on. 
Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll try to keep a, a broad explanation and, and even quote unquote saying predictors of performance, endurance performance, predictors of endurance mm-hmm. performance for what events, mm-hmm. swimming, running, biking. They all are going to share general common attributes that promote performance in that sport, but the specific limiting factors are going to be different depending on the exact mode of exercise as well, right? Right. And so hopefully we do a good job in keeping our listeners cognizant of when we talk about general views and microscopic views when we focus on something or when we're just kind of disgusting in general, because it, mm-hmm. it gets more complicated when you go close up, microscopic, back, telescopic. Yeah. Things change. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll try. I, I think something that I'd like to try with this is like, you know, we can give general overview and then we can kind of, you know, dive Break deeper and that always helps, helps me. So you know, largely speaking, I mean, the, the predictors of endurance performance, like I said, it's been about a hundred plus years worth of research. It's been recognized that the three best predictors of endurance performance are your VO2 max, which is your, your ability, your maximal oxygen consumption, your ability to intake oxygen from the environment, transport it all the way to your working muscle, and then use it within the mitochondria to, to resynthesize uh, ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell. So you have your VO2 max, and that's something that is like widely reported, you know, across like, like even your Garmin watch will tell you what your VO2 max is, right? Um, we'll get into to maybe some of the limitations and challenges with just using, uh, you know, performance variables to predict VO2 max, but, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous people. I, I liken it to the size of your aerobic engine. So somebody with a low VO2 max has like a V4, you know, you're a little Honda Civic doesn't, doesn't mean it's he's talking bad. about me, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anytime, anytime I, I use a, a low example, I'm always, it's always he's pointed talking at about Dr. Me. Jacobs. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, as you start to train, you know, maybe you have a little bit bigger and that's like a V6 and then you get, you know, start to get those people who are like the elite level uh, athletes who are like, you know, a V8, V10. Um, they have amazing, uh, you know, aerobic engines. They're, they're absolutely massive. Um, and, and that's what a lot of people are like familiar with. They're like, oh yeah, those highly, like super highly elite athletes are super high VO2 max, but a VO2 max really only tells you how good your body is at uptaking and utilizing oxygen. So we need more characteristics, more variables to be able to help to describe endurance performance. So the second uh, predictor of performance is where your thresholds are occurring. And I'm sure everybody kind of have has heard ideas of thresholds, but essentially what thresholds are measuring are changes to systemic or local or systemic physiology, where your body can no longer maintain the like steady state or status quo, uh, you know, after you kind of shift through that uh, threshold. Um, you want to add anything, anything to that? Um, uh, so we just blown over VO two max moving on the thresholds. Oh, I'm just introducing like the, I'm just introducing the, the general topics. Yeah, right thresholds, uh, VO two max is a, a so I, I would put forth a VO two max is a threshold, right? Oh yeah. 
when you're talking about biological thresholds, some people hate the term threshold um, because they're hard to identify sometimes. And so a threshold should denote a change, a specific change from one setting to another. And, and sometimes it's not so clear, right? And so these exercise thresholds, they're either called exercise thresholds, performance thresholds, metabolic thresholds, because these thresholds that we discuss represent a change, like Phil was saying, to specific variables that tell us something about our biology and that will have influence on function. And so lots of people, I would say the most common discussed or recognized thresholds are lactate threshold or ventilatory thresholds. Mm -hmm. And through our discussion on thresholds, I'm going to introduce something that Phil doesn't even know about and that ventilatory thresholds, I believe, um, why do we have lactate and ventilatory thresholds? Well, lactate is specific to changes in your blood lactate while exercising and ventilatory thresholds are changes in really is suggesting ventilation um but the most well-known ventilatory thresholds are are actually kind of monitoring carbon dioxide mm-hmm. so I, w- I would put forth that from the ventilatory thresholds we could further specify carbon dioxide thresholds or oxygen thresholds mm. yeah and that's whole body oxygen thresholds because yeah. on the flip side of things there's also near-infrared spectroscopy Right. which monitors your local oxygen thresholds and exactly and so so there's all there's all of these thresholds and all all they're trying to do is is figure out when your physiology is changing from one point one exercise intensity to another gives us an idea of what the physiological stress of the body actually is you know say at one intensity compared to a different intensity and it gives us a better indication individually of how challenging that exercise actually is for your body. That's the big um, one, right? It's how yeah. they're really going to uh, – good thresholds should also represent like closely to how you feel mm-hmm. and how sustainable the exercise is. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So So thresholds – if we're going back to the car analogy are kind of, you know, there's, there's a couple, there's two thresholds generally, right? Um, the, I would say more people are familiar with the second threshold, which is kind of the delineation between sustainable and unsustainable exercise intensity. And that would essentially be like, if you're driving your car and you're looking at the, the, the RPMs, that's where you start into red line. Anything over that red line is where you're starting to go over that second threshold. First threshold is a little different because it's measuring a little bit like slighter, like more like slight changes in your physiology. So you'll, you'll find it, you know, first increase in, in lactate for, of one millimolar above resting two millimolar of lactate circulating within the blood first increase in, in ventilation in response to you know, CO2. And, you know, I think you're leading on to a, an oxygen um, threshold first break point in, in uh, nears or skeletal muscle oxygenation. Um, 
And in that first threshold is a little bit more of determining, well, it's determining where your maximal fat oxidation really is. That That's where I think the first threshold really lies. And that's indicating where you're shifting from fat oxidation towards more uh, glycolytic or glucose oxidation. So it's a it's more of a substrate-based threshold that we're trying to estimate with things like lactate, ventilation, uh, SMO2, uh, those sort of things. So that, that, that in and of itself is another kind of like efficiency. It's, it's, it's how efficient are you at burning a certain type of substrate? Um, gets a little complicated and that's why there's, uh, I think last time I looked, there's like 40 different lactate thresholds that have been determined. Uh, what what are, least, which ones are you most familiar with? Um, so, I mean, I think, I think most people, uh, are familiar with like two millimole and four millimole. Um, and I want to make a specific episode about thresholds and, you know, just kind of like talk about them in a lot totally. more detail because you could probably do individual episodes on just yeah. lactate on just yeah. ventilatory on just yeah. critical power on just fat max. Right. Yeah. So, and I think, I think that would be useful for people because everybody is limited by what they can actually like say, go into the lab and do. And, you know, this being an applied physiology podcast, uh, you know, we need to be able to give people tools in their tool belt to say, Oh, well I have a lactate meter. Here's, what I could do, or I have a, a portable metabolic device that only measures oxygen consumption. You know, how would I use that to actually like get my ventilatory variables? Um, or I have a moxie monitor and you know, how am I supposed to get my SMO too? So yeah, I, I certainly think that making, um, like talking about those in depth, uh, in future episodes would be amazing. Um, but yeah, so, so what I was getting at though, is that thresholds, are complicated and there's a lot of different ways that people have tried, you know, to, to monitor them, estimate them. And in all actuality, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're just trying to figure out when those changes in physiology are occurring, because then we get a better idea of what the primary adaptation is for whatever exercise intensity that we're trying to do. Okay. So what about this? Let me see if I can, so if VO2 max roughly kind of references our maximal potential for aerobic power or the ability to generate aerobic power, mm -hmm. thresholds provide additional nuance, um, giving examples of sustainable aerobic power mm -hmm. with the first one. Uh, first threshold kind of that we're going to be talking about more long term, right? Long exercise, maybe restricted nutrition, where that upper threshold is uh, better denotes exercise intensity when someone's not limited by nutrition. They're fully yeah. uh, carbohydrate loaded, have full glycogen stores. They're rested. They're not um, recovering. They're they're mm -hmm. ready to blow up, right. Mm -hmm. To go as hard for as long as they can. Yeah. I like, yeah. It. Yeah. And I think too, I would say, you know, VO two max is a threshold. I would say VO two max is like kind of maybe like a ceiling. 
Right. Like it kind of, it sets, right. It sets like right. that high, high, I guess. Sure. And that would be a threshold, right? You know, if you run into a wall, that's a threshold. Like, like when yeah. you ran the 440 mile that you mm -hmm. did, what do you think your VO2 was in relation to your VO2 max back then? Like 800 meter sprinters. Yeah. Prob I mean, probably running at their VO2 max, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, and that's exactly what we saw when we did those three minute tests, like those three minute all out tests we would see people regularly get to VO2 max. So it's like, well, if you can do three minutes and get to VO2 max, obviously you right. kind of, you kind of lose, um, lose some of the nuances in terms of, you know, like the, the, the lower thresholds and then efficiency, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, but yeah, it's, yeah. So I would say, yeah, for like the, the super short things, right. You know, two, right. four, and some people say like, even if you're, well, if you're an elite level athlete, like a 5k, can almost be run at, at VO2 max. Exactly. But they wouldn't refer to it as that, right? They'd probably refer right. to it as critical power. And so in right. some instances, I would say that critical power and VO2 max may be synonymously discussed. Mm -hmm. It just depends on what the event is, right? What the, right. the distance is, what the intensity and duration of exercise is. That, that helps us define limiting factors like we're going to be discussed as well as kind of understand the usefulness of these different thresholds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, the, like all of these obviously like go into play, like even in the, in the coil and joiner paper, they recognize that, um, you know, VO two max plus the ability to run or, you know, plus your, your threshold gave you your performance VO two, which essentially, kind of dictates your ability, you know, whatever your speed or power output is at that, uh, you know, speed. Um, and obviously being able to access a higher percentage of your VO2 max is going to be beneficial for, you know, long-term power output. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and then it comes down to like, you know, so this is something I just gave a talk, uh, to some coaches and we were talking about, Oh, when people go to altitude, you know, their, their VO2 max can be reduced by like 20%. If you go up to like 13,000 feet or something like that. And then they're like, well, does your, does your lactate threshold also get reduced by 20%? And I was like, that's a really good question. Cause I, I would assume so if not more, but I don't know. So the, the intensity of exercise at which those thresholds occur when you're at yeah. altitude. Yeah, yeah. Like the percentage and how much they change in regards to VO2 max. I'm sure that that data is out there that we, that we could get more information. I, I don't know off the top of my head. That's a, that's yeah. a good question. Yeah. Because the way I was teaching it is I was saying, okay, well, when you go up to altitude, you're breathing more and in the process of breathing more, you're going to have more oxygen demand just because you're actually having to forcefully get oxygen into your body. So that's going to, increase the amount of o2 that's required for a given exercise intensity but it's not going to help with your performance right it's just essentially this is what i need to do in order to be able to accomplish this task so you'll have you know your your 20 percent reduction in vo2 max most likely that that second threshold is still occurring at the same percentage of your vo2 max so that's going to be reduced at least 20 percent but then on top of that, you're also working harder because you're breathing harder. So that's going to yeah. be reduced more. So if you have super inefficient breathing, it's going to be reduced really, really 
bad, but if you're, if you're pretty efficient with breathing and everything, then it, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as much. So yeah, that was my, my, That's great. my non, yeah. That can was I, my, can my, I add to that? Yeah, for sure. Cause at an altitude, our temperatures, do they tend to be warmer or more temperate? Temperature would be a little cooler. Right. And so possibly it's all, it's all based on the situation. Mm-hmm. Could the extra O2 necessary for the ventilatory muscles be offset by maybe a redistribution of blood flow from the skin to the ventilatory? I get it's all context right. dependent, right? Right. But then you're but then you're breathing more, so you're potentially losing more humidity through your breathing totally which could then yep. make you dehydrated you do you then you hemoconcentrate you definitely yeah. do that absolutely yeah. happens so but then yep. your heart rate's going to have to be higher because your plasma volume is lower so it's all this you know it's like <laughs> yeah it's complicated right yeah um, totally yep but I like but that. yeah because because i kept getting the question like oh well just tell me how much reduction in ftp i'm gonna get i'm like you're depends yeah it, it's it's not as simple as just like Oh, 20% reduction, you know, based on these studies. Cause they, they, people sent me those, like sent me some of those studies and you know, like we just talked about, it's like, oh my gosh, there's so many things that you need to take into account. And in an ideal world, right. You would, you'd get, get up to altitude early. You'd start adapting. You'd get over that kind of 72 hour phase of like dehydration and sleep issues and nutritional issues. And then you'd do like a little bit of a, a threshold style workout where you're recalibrating where you think your sustainable paces are. And then that would give you kind of your, your thresholds. Right. And a lot of these, a lot of these races, you know, unless you're like an Olympic level athlete, who's going to race like in, in Mexico city or something for the Olympics, a lot of these races are going to be longer. So you're going to generally be racing closer to that fat max versus, you know, closer to your VO two max. So you know, it's, I just recommend, I'm just like, look, you just need to, you need to reduce your, your pace a lot. You can always speed up. Um, it's hard. It's a lot harder to go out too fast and then hold on. Um, because if you're putting yourself in a, in a calorie deficit, you're going to be primarily removing a lot of glycogen and then you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. The cellular mechanisms, that cause skill to muscle fatigue are hard to reverse as you're still as, as you still have a a lot of metabolic demand. And so that's Mm -hmm. exactly why what you just said is true. It's hard to, when you've uh, pushed yourself a little bit too far during competition, it's it's hard to uh, untangle that metabolic knot during the competition. Yeah. Yeah. I, and that is something we will definitely talk about is like the, the mechanisms of fatigue, because there's a few myths around, uh, around and about that. I think we could bust a little bit, but yeah. So, so I think, I mean, that was, that was a great discussion on, on threshold, um, and, you know, kind of just how important it is, right. That's essentially going to be dictating how good your performance potential is, um, and then, and then finally, you have to understand how well your body can convert chemical energy, which is coming from the breakdown of ATP within your muscle and translate that to mechanical energy, which is like power or speed. Um, and that's, that's where 
researchers have come up with these terms, economy and efficiency. Um, economy is more based off of oxygen demand for a certain either speed or power output. Efficiency is energy demand, so it's slightly different. Um, but what it's trying to do is it's trying to tell you what's your MPG, what's your miles to the gallon, you know, on your, on your car, are you a Prius or are you a, a, a Ram 3,500? Cause you could have a VO two max, you could have a huge engine and have a Prius efficiency, or you could have a huge engine and have, a, you know, like a, a really terrible diesel truck, you know, like five miles to the gallon, you know, sort of efficiency. And those are going to play greatly. Uh, those are, it, it's going to affect your performance a lot. Yeah, totally. Um, and I just, I'm sitting here kind of considering ways in which it's really noticeable how the importance of exercise economy or efficiency in some sports, it's importance seems as we understand it currently minimal, like with cycling, it mm -hmm. doesn't have as big a, a role. Um, especially when considering VO2 max and specific metabolic thresholds, research has shown that it doesn't improve much to the explanation of the variation endurance performance, but you take something like running. Whoo. Oh yeah. Economy is huge. And so let's just consider you and I for a second. Would you consider yourself a better cyclist or a runner? I think you're a better runner. I think I the think, stuff that you've done in running is more yeah. impressive than your respective feats yeah. with biking, right? Yeah. I feel completely the opposite. I feel that uh, my prowess in cycling so much better relative to my running. And I really wonder if that may be attributed to exercise economy. My ex I wonder if I have this really poor exercise economy. You know, especially you're thinking when it comes to running. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's one of those things where I think efficiency takes the longest to develop. And it's something like, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't super, super consistent, but I was consistent enough to see, you know, pretty good leaps and gains uh, in, in my 5K time, especially in, in high school. Um and I think you, because it takes so long to make those gains, I think you maintain those gains for longer. Hmm. So, so, you know, it's like, like, I think Paula Radcliffe is actually a perfect example of this. There was a study that was done that followed her and her training and did physiological testing towards for like the last five or six years of her career. She's the, she used to be, I don't know if she is anymore, the uh, women's marathon record holder. And what they did is what they found was that her VO2 max actually went down for the last, you know, five years of her training, but her efficiency levels kept going up and she kept getting faster. So that kind of brought about this idea that especially in running, because it is such a, if you have, you know, if, if you're taking one step and you're losing, you know, like, like 2% energy per step that, you know, will compound, especially over like a two hour marathon. To the point where, you know, that could be the difference between, you know, running a two hour marathon or running a two fifteen marathon. Right. Totally. So, and the two components, 
as I understand it, that are really crucial to understanding uh, somebody's uh, exercise economy or, or efficiency is there's metabolic efficiency in, like you said, directly how much energy can we ca- can we transfer from the bonds of the substrates, primarily fat and carbohydrate that we rely on mm-hmm. during you know exercise to ATP. That that there's an efficiency with that. And, um, a lot of energy's lost as heat, but, but even though we're, we're fairly efficient in how we do that, but then once we have the ATP, we have to generate the force mm-hmm. and the force is generated, you know, in the muscle belly, but then that force needs to propagate down the muscle across non-contractile components of the, the, you know, skill, the muscle, uh, to the tendon, to the bone. Right. And so there's also an efficiency with that's very much based on the composition of the muscle. And so there are two big parts that make up our exercise economy or efficiency with, uh, at least in my experience, poor understanding of how to separate those two in the lab. Mm-hmm. We just kind of combine those in our measures, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the measures of economy and efficiency just take into account all of it. Right. And you know, I'm not, I'm not a biomechanics guy, but luckily we have uh, Jonah on the podcast and I want to ask him about this because he does a lot of like force plate, force plate testing uh, for runners and they can, with those force plate, they can measure if somebody, uh, is able to transfer more force, you know, compared to others. And then you can actually do things like, you know, strength training, power training, other things like that to actually improve that. And I I think, you know, if you really wanted to get at is, is this more of a metabolic efficiency issue or is it more of a mechanical transfer issue, you know, through the tendons, then you'd have to implement that, like, you know, the force plate testing, the, the jumping, um, you know, maybe running over a force plate, right? Because that's a little bit more indicative of like, of actually what you're doing in running, like in, in running, you're not just jumping up and down as quickly as possible. You are jumping from one foot to the other, but it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a slower burn as opposed to, uh, you know, like the, the super intense jumping that you would, you know, maybe have somebody do. This is like, uh, this is kind of sending me down a rabbit hole of thoughts right now. I think like, it'd be really cool to see, you know, because like, so there's this, this movement, right? Everybody should be running at 180 steps per minute. And I wonder, wait, 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 is that real? Is that a legit recommendation? It's yeah. That's like a a lot of running coaches and stuff like recommend it because they're like, Oh, well, if you're, if you're running at 180 steps per minute, so it'd be 90, right? 90 cadence, then um, you're going to reduce the amount of force per push. And I mean, you know, you're, you'd probably be lowering your ground contact time. So then you'd be increasing your power. And if you're increasing your power, then you're increasing, you know, potentially, potentially increasing your efficiency. Um, obviously you still need to understand, you know, like the, the, the rate of force development and other things like that. But it's like, I wonder if you could take you know, something along those lines, I'm going to ask Jonah this on the, on the next podcast that I'm on with him. Um, 
maybe you could take some of those and actually have like an applicable efficiency value for running then um, where you look at different cadences at different speeds and, you know, then kind of find where your most efficient speed is and your most efficient cadence. Does that be I cool? wonder how walking too, right? Because we all have our own cadence of walking and there's mm-hmm. research that's shown that we, we subconsciously kind of understand our most efficient pace. That's why some of us walk a little bit faster. Some walk a little bit more slowly. Mm-hmm. I wonder how, how transferable some of that information that you get from uh, walking also transfers over to running. I would say different for maybe, sure. Yeah. I, I would say maybe a little bit because, but not, not a lot because I, I can imagine like, okay, so, so I, this is going to be maybe a stretch in terms of uh, connection here. But when I was, when I've, I've just gotten back into cycling pretty regularly and what, what's I, regularly like, so what, 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 how like I'll do, do you ride? I'll, I'll do like an hour every day. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So five days a week. Sure. How much do you so, run on top of that? Um, I haven't been running because I, I tweaked my Achilles and you know, I was just like, it's not worth it to, to be able to do nothing. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just ride. And, you know, so I've, I've just been working on that. I'm not signed up for any races. I, I, I did that 50 K back in May and I was going to try to do another one in October, but there were like some work things that were going on that I was like, it was too variable. You didn't, you didn't like plan it around your PhD defense or anything. Did you? (laughs) Um, yeah, I did it two weeks, two weeks before (laughs) it was kind of, okay. So, so let me, let me explain this to everybody. Um, so during my PhD, I kind of gave up like training for anything because I got, you know, super, super busy with, you know, trying to do a PhD cause they're, they're kind of busy. But you did a lot of CrossFit, right? I was, yeah, I, but I was going like just to a class every day or like every other day or something. So you were that was specific just, training. You're just going no. in. I was going in and I was just trying to maintain my mental health, honestly, like just go talk to the community at the gym, do things like that. So I wasn't training for anything. I didn't really feel like from a stress perspective that I could, um, because every time I would start to train for something, I'd get like injured or, you know, something like that. So I was just like, you know what? I I don't need to do this right now. Um, but then towards the end of my PhD, I was kind of like, I was getting really stressed. And when I'm super, super stressed, having kind of like something totally different to look forward to really helps me focus on, on the other things. And then, you know, I can bounce back and forth and be more effective. So I, yeah, I started training at the beginning of the year and then I came back or then I was like, Hmm, it'd be, it'd be fun. Cause I was, I was targeting like a hundred K, uh, in October. That's what, that was the initial plan. And then I was like training, 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 getting ready for my defense, get getting prepared to go hike, uh, the Inca trail, uh, to Machu Picchu. And then it just so happened. I was just looking, looking up like races and stuff. And it just so happened that there was a 50 K, uh, down the road from me a week from when I was looking. So it was like, it was like during the week, it was like on one of the weekends. It's like, huh, it's only 15 minutes away. I don't have to drive very far. I just wake up and go and do the race. And, um, you know, there's still spots open. So I, I signed up for it. It was the Mac done 50 K in Corvallis. It was 
actually pretty brutal, but, um, yeah, so I signed up on a whim and then, you know, I was like, I, I've been training, you know, I've been, I've been doing my, my nutrition stuff. I've been doing other things like that. And, uh, was able, you know, I kind of went out there. I was like, I'm not going to win. I'm not going to do anything crazy here. I'm just going to go out and I'm just going to try to complete it. And I think it took me just under seven hours, but I was able to do that. And then, yeah, my PhD defense was like two weeks after that. But at that, at that point, at that point, I had already turned my document in. I was really making only making like, you know, edits to my presentation and making sure that was better. So I totally agree. But there's also this young man that I was familiar with that, uh, was very particular about events. It was big. It was a big move. I was proud that you did that. I think that, yeah. uh, that definitely had to have pushed you out of your comfort zone. Hey, speaking of your approach, did you consider your VO2 max, your thresholds or your economy as you prep for that race? Oh yeah, I did. How, uh, how do you take them into account? How, how do you kind yeah. of incorporate those into your approach? Yeah, I think, I think <clears throat> with, with ultra training, um, or at least, at least whenever I, I first start getting into stuff, I just like to do testing just to see where I'm at. So I, I did, I did a number of VO2 max tests throughout and, and do you I do them I on a treadmill like, or do you do them on a bike? Nope. I did them on a treadmill, treadmill and I did it. I did it inclined. So, so as opposed to changing the speed of the treadmill, I just yeah, changed, changed the incline, incline as much as possible. Um, and I think my view two max, you know, went from like 55 and granted this were with these were different, uh, different metabolic carts and stuff, but like 55 to like 65 ish, um, 60, 65. And um, how long? In, in um, over the course time. of, of January to May. That's tremendous, man. That's a, that's yeah. a really good improvement. Did your weight change your body weight? Um, if anything, no, I don't think so. Uh, if anything, I gained a little weight actually. Cause I was like, wow. I'm going to, I'm going to eat as much as I need to, to maintain my, my academics and to be able to yeah, facilitate sure. all this training. So I, I did gain a little bit of weight and, you know, going into it. So I've, uh, I've had this, this love hate relationship kind of with like, like weight and running and stuff, because I have this connection. I was in high school. I was 155 pounds. I was always a runner, 155 pounds. But then I went and I wrestled for, for like the, the winter and I got down to like 135, 140. I was a twig and I was the same height. I was like six foot tall, 140 pounds, got super skinny. And then went and set all my, you know, personal records, my junior year uh, of running and everything like that. Absolutely was killing it. Um, and then I, I got injured or something like that towards the end of the season. So that should have been the number one red flag. But I always made these connections like, oh, the skinnier I am, the faster I am. And, you know, it, it's a it's a it's an acute it's an acute improvement in performance. So I was like, OK, well. Now, you know, I'm pretty much the, the, in the worst shape that I've ever been. Um, I want to stay healthy. I need to stay healthy, essentially. So I was like, yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going to try to eat as much carbohydrate as I possibly can try to maintain my protein intake. And, you know, we're just going to go from there. So I during my actual race, I was like 175, which is as big as I've probably been during any of those any, you know, event that I've done. And, you know, the whole time I was able to 
to, to maintain, you know, like my, my training and didn't get sick. I got sick after the race because I killed myself during the race and then didn't eat for three days. Cause I couldn't eat. Well, that's normal. Um, I mean, that's such a, yeah. that stimulus of a 50 K is so overwhelming to your immune yeah. system and then you remove it. Right. Yeah. Because now you have a PhD defense. I expect that, uh, even the best would probably have most likely gotten sick in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. But the bottom line is, is I was able to kind of improve my VO two max. I wasn't doing specific, say VO two max workouts other than, okay, actually. So, yeah. So, so the way that my training was set up is I'd wake up in the mornings and I do 20 to 30 minute run, like, you know, and, and built that up over the course of the five months that I was training. <clears throat> and then Monday fasted or fed, uh, fasted. I would just drink, drink some coffee and then just go for, it was like easy. Um, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't because I was trying to stimulate more mitochondrial biogenesis or anything like that. It was just like, it was because it fit with my, my habits of life. I would just drink my coffee, do my, my Instagram sort of stuff, and then go for a run when I was done with that. Um, and that just works for me, uh, you know, in 20 to 30 minutes, right. You don't you don't need to feel two hours beforehand or anything like that. Um, and then I'd, and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would do something where I would go to the the gym on campus and I would do like a stair stepper for an hour. And this is where, this is where like the zone two training kind of came in because I was able, you know, from my physiology testing to be able to say, okay, my heart rate should be around 130. So if I wear a heart rate strap, I'll just go to 130 on that day. And I'll just, you know, try to try to crank it out for for an hour. Um, during most, if not all of those training sessions, I was eating because I didn't want to be in too much of a calorie deficit. Um, which would just give my body another, you know, another stressor to try to overcome once I was done. Um, and then Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would do bike workouts, but they were on a, a fan bike that I had. Um, it was like a C2 biker, which I really like those, but I would do like, I would do kind of like VO2 max style intervals. Well, so those are like brutal. Three... Those bikes are tough. How, how yeah. long, how long so you it, ride? it's not, it's not one of those. It's, it's just more of like, you know, like a regular riding bike, but it would be like, you know, 10, 15 minute warm up, And I would use my Nears device, my Moxie to, dictate if I was warmed up or not. Um, and then I would just go into it and I would just say, okay, well today, I, I think what I was doing is I was doing two days a week of like, of three minutes on three minutes off. And I'd repeat, repeat that two to four times, depending on how I was feeling. Um, and I felt like that was a good way of kind of getting that high end training without getting the, the high impact of, of, you know, running outside. Um, would you use any threshold measures from your moxies as well? Like any? Um, no, for the VO two max stuff, it was just like, okay, how hard can you go for three minutes? So, so it wasn't, you know, and I wasn't doing, uh, I wasn't doing dedicated threshold work either. Like I wasn't trying to do, you know, th like 30 minutes at X threshold, but I did met, like, I did try to measure, you know, like my, uh, you know, second to FTP critical power, whatever you want to call it, um, on the bike, just to kind of know where I was. And I think at least on that bike, I was, you know, could maintain, you know, depending on the day, 280 to 310 Watts for those three minutes, which 
is would be about critical power, right? If we're if we're thinking about the critical power uh, curve, so I definitely could not maintain that for for very long. And then and now that I'm riding on my Wahoo kicker with my mountain bike, man, like the erg mode is so much harder than just like the free spinning. Fans. I have a theory on this. I have a theory. I, I want to hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> well, and so I've even I've even talked to uh, some well-known cycling coaches about this. I noticed when I was really getting into cycling um, and I would uh, cycle on Swift, it kind of shows your power profile, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of noise, but uh, I really got interested in looking at my power profile when I would race. Mm-hmm. Because I'm very confident that if I were to successfully add some noise like filters on that, that you could see almost an exercise signature of my my race performance. And um, I, I think it's because of for steady state exercise we have motor units that are fatiguing and withdrawing and having other motor units activating and added all the time Mm -hmm. and so this concept even when we're maintaining the same output over time that doesn't mean that we're using the same motor units to achieve that output right and so i really think um and so i i practiced and having rather than just erg mode where i stayed steady is I go up, then I go down, then I go up, then I go down. And if you find the right profile that matches, you know, your metabolic capacities of your muscle, I was able to maintain a higher power output over that period of time than if I just hmm. set it to erg mode. Hmm. That... And, and so I, I asked, I asked uh, Steve Johnson, who used to coach USA Cycling uh, back mm-hmm. in the day, and he was like, absolutely. It, somebody can maintain over a period of time, a higher power output. If they're, if there are almost micro cycles Mm -hmm. within that consistency. That's, that's so interesting. You say that because I think that that kind of happens automatically on like the fan bike that I have, right? Like you're trying to maintain say 300 Watts or whatever, but then you're 280, 310, 280, 310, you know, you're going back and forth and it is, it is so much easier, you know, to do like performance stuff on the, on the fan bike versus on the Wahoo kicker. Um, and when I say fan bike, I'm talking a C2 biker. So it's, it's essentially just like a stationary bike, but you just have a fan and then I have clip and pedals and everything for it. So, um, yeah, it, it was interesting because I've since shifted and I'm like, man, I could like the other day I did it wasn't even a threshold workout, but it was like, it was like a moderate threshold workout where I would, would like boosted it up to 204, like 204 Watts. And then just try to hold that there for, I think like 12, 12 to 16 minutes. And I was like, Holy crap. Like this, this seems so much harder than, you know, like 204 totally. would be nothing for me. Like on totally. one other bike. Yeah. Like, I'll struggle one day trying to maintain like 210 or 215. I'll go race later in that week and all my output would be average of like 235 240 and i was like oh, i felt easier i mean i'm sure that some of it is i'm competing and and maybe i'm engaged a little bit more but right and and i think also i'd be willing to uh propose 
that specific muscle signatures or power profile signatures will explain uh, some of fiber composition. So skilled yeah. muscle fiber type distribution. Yeah. Of someone yeah. as well. I wonder, I wonder, I mean, and, and this is something, so going back to like the, these papers, that's something that has been talked about a lot is like, you know, type one fiber type composition, which is type one fibers are your in, endurance fibers. They're, you know, the, the least fatigable they have the, the most mitochondria, depending on how trained you are, um, you know, so on and so forth, but there's still some, some unknowns in terms of, it still seems like having more type one fibers, even though type two, a fibers are really adaptable, having more type one fibers is still more beneficial, at least for like that, that gross mechanical efficiency. So I wonder if that plays into it, right? If people who have more type one fibers are the ones that can, you know, maintain a, a slower deviation across the entire time, because they're not, you know, jumping into their type two, a fibers, which are then going to be their larger motor units. So they're going to be contracting harder. So then, you know, you're going to potentially get more power output. Um, that'd be cool. Yeah. That'd be really sweet to do some muscle biopsies and start to analyze like fiber type composition with that. Feel good on you. You just pointed out uh, something super important that I, I missed. Type 1 fibers absolutely are. But, and this is coming from me, people, uh, I think, focus too much on the mitochondrial content related to fiber types and not the energetic demand of contraction itself. Mm. So independent from mitochondrial content, Slow twitch fibers require less ATP to manage calcium kinetics, intracellular calcium kinetics. Uh, they're just less expensive to run from an ATP perspective. And so when you consider, yeah, sure, type 2A and slow twitch type 1 skilled muscle fibers may have the same amount of mitochondria. There's some research showing that type 2A fibers may even be higher, but... That's just the input of ATP. What about the output? Mm -hmm. Type 2A fibers utilize ATP at a significantly quicker clip than your slow mm -hmm. twitch. And so that's right where you're saying efficiency seems to relate more to these slow twitch type 1 fibers. Yeah, it's because they require less ATP to manage the same relative force that they're capable of generating than mm -hmm. our fast twitch uh, cohorts of fibers as well. Yeah. Which, which then is also super interesting because like that one, one realm of this podcast is a little bit more on the CrossFit side of things. And there's a, a CrossFit games athlete, Rich Froning, who has been reported to have a VO two max when he was at his peak of like 74.5 or something like that, which is absolutely insanely high. Right. Cause he's but, probably pretty big like in terms of muscle and he's so that's like 195 pounds yeah that's and so if you were then to convert that into absolute you two that's huge yeah so so i i'll i'll let's let's just say we believe the numbers here right okay if like there's no way in you know, sometimes one of the, one of the CrossFit coaches likes to talk about how, oh, if, if Rich Froning, you know, just, you know, decided to run a marathon, he'd be able to run like a 215 or something like that. It's like, there's no way. Um, even with a 75 or 74 and a half as his VO2 max, but 
what I'm getting at is that I think that because CrossFitters require so much force output, I would imagine if you did like a skeletal muscle biopsy on them, they would have an insane proportion of type 2A fibers. Those type 2A fibers are going to be insanely mitochondrial dense just because of the nature. CrossFit is essentially an endurance sport that just requires you to be super strong. So I imagine, you know, like, so, so getting back to like this, like translational piece, his view to max is super high, but I can almost guarantee you his mechanical efficiency is going to be super low or just his efficiency in general. And that could be one of the reasons uh, explaining that, right? He could have such a high VO2 max, but then because he's mostly type 2A fibers, you know, he's using a lot of ATP. And, you know, then, you know, that's just a lot of ATP is a lot of energy or a lot of heat release, a lot of energy release. And it's probably not going to be quite as efficient, you know, if he had more type one fibers. Exactly. It's like certain formula one racing. I'm sure that, uh, the pit crew doesn't say, Hey, what's, what does this car get for miles per gallon? Right. They just want to know pure, like, yeah what's this engine capable of? But then for a, a longer road race where you do have to refuel and that becomes an issue, right? Then you want to mm -hmm. pay a lot more close or closer attention to something like that economy. Yeah. That's right. a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, with, you got a little bit more time, right. That you have yeah, set sure. free. Sweet. With, with the last, you know, little bit, I think we can, we can kind of dive in even a little deeper to the, to the Vander's word paper where we, you know, we, we kind of started to touch on this with fiber type composition, but, um, since the, uh, the first paper, it's not really the first paper, but since coil and joiner, joiner and coil came up with their paper on predictors of performance, another guy who I don't, have you worked with, uh, Steven Vander's word? I haven't. No. Um, but we like him because he cited our papers. Um, and a lot of your papers, actually, uh, as I was reading through this, but he he's kind of on, uh, you know, this this he expanded this model where, uh, you know, he took endurance performance and said, OK, well, endurance predictors of performance are, you know, your view to max, your lactate threshold and your efficiency and your economy. But from the paper that you and I came out with during my master's degree, we were started, started to, and, you know, other wicks that you'd, you'd done previously, we started to say, Hey, the mitochondria and mitochondrial function is really important for performance as well. And so what they did is they took kind of like that aggregate data, the paper we published, the paper you published, and they started to say, okay, well, what, are the skeletal muscle determinants of endurance performance and how are they related to the three, uh, you know, endurance performance predictors that we talked about early threat earlier threshold view to max and economy and efficiency. And I mean, it, it all kind of makes sense if you understand, you know, kind of like, like fiber types and, and other things like that. But I mean, they're one of the, one of the best predictors of performance, VO2 max lactate threshold is your proportion of type one fibers. It's like, okay, that, that makes sense. Right. Because of the characteristics that come with type one fibers, they require less ATP, you know, for, for contraction, they have high levels of mitochondrial volume density. 
All right. So my question is, is, is there a difference in mitochondrial function across to fiber types? Not that we know of. And, and I really, the, the resolution that we're able to, uh, test different various indices of quote unquote mitochondrial function, um, I, they're probably still too blunt mm -hmm. to tell. And really a lot of my work just looks at, uh, oxygen kinetics. So really how much oxygen can mitochondria use where there's roles of calcium, uh, and other factors that maybe other researchers, if they hear this, they'll be like, that guy's a dummy because <laughs> he's not aware of this, 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 and this. But at least in terms of the ability to utilize, to reduce oxygen to, to water, there's no evidence to suggest such as yeah. of now. Yeah. Something that I got really interested in at the end of my PhD was this idea of like mitochondrial morphology, like Christae formation and everything, because I think that's super important for the initial adaptations of the mitochondria in response to exercise. And it's something that we haven't really been able to look at lately or, you know, before. Um, and I wonder, you know, and then, so, so then you start to think, okay, well, if we're reforming, you know, like the Christae, which are, which are, uh, essentially pockets where the mitochondria can, uh, put more hydrogens and, you know, sequester the hydrogens for ATP. Um, for those of you who are, don't really know, um, just throwing out random words, but, um, and then on top of that, super uh, complex formation, right, could also, you know, play play into the ability of our mitochondria to actually efficiently stack complexes on top of each other. Not Maybe not, you know, become more efficient, but just use more oxygen per square millimeter, <laughs> square micrometer. Uh, but, but, but I think, you know, that's something that could be a really interesting, you know, field of study eventually, like if, if people were able to take a, a type one fiber type two, a fiber, start to look at that sort of stuff, start to look at the responses to exercise, start to, uh, you know, really look at, you know, differences in morphology, other things, then that, that could maybe uncover a little bit more of, you know, maybe why we see those big differences in type one fibers as well. Um, yeah. Cause they also talk about like, you know, capillarization and myoglobin content are, there's gotta be differences in myoglobin content between type one and type two, a fibers, right? I would think there is just looking at, at muscle, uh, I've worked with muscle samples for a long time and especially rodent mm -hmm. muscle. Uh, you, you can see, you can visually see a difference between muscle that's primarily slow twitch, like the soleus is super deep, yep. deep red and some of the other muscles, but you know, it's interesting. I got an email this morning from a co-author for a paper that was invited to be resubmitted for the potential to be published. The title is skill to muscle mitochondria demonstrate similar respiration per Christe's surface area, independent of training status and sex in healthy humans with, with some co-authors names, uh, such as Niels Ortenblatt, Joachim Nielsen, Karsten Lundby. So, and 
Phil does not know that this study was conducted and that this research is about to be published. We agree. We think that that's a very interesting area yeah. of research. That's for awesome. Sure. I'm, I'm so glad that that is being looked at because that was something that I saw during my PhD and I wanted to do some, you know, grant proposals for it and stuff, but, you know, obviously with, with time and everything didn't, didn't get around to it, but yeah, that's, um, I really think, you know, like, like Chris day density is super important. How much surface area you have within your mitochondria is going to dictate how much, how many electrons you can pass, how much hydrogens, how many hydrogens you can sequester, how much, like how heat yeah. you can dissipate. So just since you've been uh, in the lab, I've had this transformational experience, uh, just kind of learning more and more about how important mm -hmm. heat is. Not just in, not just for adaptation, but also potentially. Uh, I have theories how skeletal muscle temperature may actually help dictate lactate thresholds. Hmm. Um, I, I think that skeletal muscle temperature may be a primary uh, stimulus for skeletal muscle fatigue, inducing skeletal muscle fatigue. And, and just like you were saying, the surface area of the mitochondria, you think the mitochondria, I was in preparation for this podcast, I wanted to look up because I've seen some figures that show pretty tight correlations between skeletal muscle capillarization. Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly there, there are different characteristics of the capillarization that are often looked at, but there's research showing that changes in mitochondrial volume density and capillarization are, are pretty close. They're, they're very closely mm -hmm. related and um, probably across fiber types, kind of like you're saying, if we're just looking at type one, I bet you that, also, myoglobin concentration is strongly correlated. If we just look at type 2, the myoglobin concentration is probably correlated tightly as well. And so these components, is it really capillarization, myoglobin, and mitochondria, or is it the collection of them all together yeah. functioning as one? Right? And so that's why I, I try to put forward that you put you combine those characters, characteristics of the skeletal muscle and you get like skeletal muscle oxidative mm -hmm. potential maybe rather than mitochondrial right. capacity it's it's more encompassing of all these accessory functions that really help the mitochondria do right what they do yeah right? yeah i 100% agree with that and that's something like you know using that this is where i think nears is super valuable because you have the ability of essentially measuring that to a yeah that unit that oxidative mm -hmm. potential and what, and, yeah and that was exactly the terminology that we were using in, in the paper because we were like, well, mu it's muscle oxidative capacity. It's not mitochondrial capacity because we're not specifically just right. looking at the mitochondria. This isn't us taking a muscle sample from somebody taking out all the mitochondria or taking a single permeabilized fiber. It's looking at the oxygen kinetics that are happening at the level of the capillary beds, more or less. And then, you know, looking at how quickly, you know, you essentially reperfuse oxygen after you go essentially ischemic, right? You know, like an arterial, uh, after an arterial occlusion. So yeah, that's, oh, man, that, that actually makes a lot more sense, you know, now that we're talking about that. 
And so the the relationship of NIRS-derived measures of skilled muscle oxidative potential are stronger in their relationship to performance than individual kind of measures that are more representative of maybe a mitochondrial mm-hmm. characteristic in the skilled muscle. And just as you were saying, I think that uh, being able to capture uh, some of this accessory function, maybe it's not even accessory, some of the mm-hmm. totality of metabolic function with NIRS probably explains its stronger relation to endurance performance. Yeah. With yeah. I think, I think it's, you know, becoming more, it's more of an integrative measure versus a reductionist measure, like what we were talking about. And that in those integrative measures are super important, right? Like the ability to transport oxygen from the capillary bed transport or transfer that to myoglobin within the muscle. And then myoglobin keeping oxygen tension high enough that it's really easy just to pluck it off the the mitochondria to pluck off that oxygen and just use it. Right. All of those play into that cascade effect. And it's, it's, it's funny how we take out, you know, say essentially take away the capillaries. If we're using permeabilized fibers, get rid of all great, you know, gradients, get rid of almost everything. Or if we, if we're doing isolated mitochondria, which we did a lot in my lab, it's like, you're getting rid of almost everything. Right. And you're breaking it apart and Mm -hmm. letting it come back together and kind Mm -hmm. of spontaneously. So it's, I, I think it's truly amazing. Um, I'm continually amazed at how well isolated measures of mitochondria relate to certain biological functions. Just when you know exactly kind of yeah. the methodology, you're taking the scarecrow completely apart, letting it kind of re- come back together spontaneously, and then using that as a, a surrogate for biological mm-hmm. in vivo function yeah. in the body, yeah. right? No, it, it really wild. is. And if you, uh, if you talk to the wrong people or the right people, depending on how you view it, uh, they would say isolated mitochondria is, you know, <laughs> trash and completely useless, but you know, it's, well, it's just yeah. like publications, right? We get a little bit of information. Uh, give me all the information you got because, uh, anybody who is so f- flippant or quick to dismiss data often, uh, forget mm-hmm. small oversights or, or they, they, they miss yeah. something. Right? Yeah. I think, I, I, I think that this was, this is a really good stopping point because I think next week, what we can do is we can talk about the paper you and I published together and then kind of, you know, what's happened in the last three years of, of research and everything and kind of follow up with that. Cause you're still ingrained with all of that sort of stuff. I kind of stopped, you know, when, when I was done with my master's, but I, I want to continue this conversation next week. I think, this week, you know, was great. We talked about the the three main predictors of endurance performance, VO2 max, thresholds, and efficiencies. Then we started to talk about actually how I use those a little bit during my my training and everything. And, you know, we then we got down to, you know, this idea that it's probably, you know, endurance performance is most likely predicted by the ability to transport and utilize oxygen within, you know, kind of like that, that integrated, uh, pathway from capillary to myoglobin to, to mitochondria. Um, so man, this, this is sort of stuff. So, so one of the reasons why I loved my master's degree is because Robbie and I would have conversations like this every single day. 
I wouldn't get any work done. I would take away from all of his work getting done, but I'm so fortunate now that we actually get to have these conversations again. So this is great. I hope all of you, you know, get, get good insights and takeaways from this sort of stuff. If you're uh, on uh, YouTube watching this video, comment down below. What sort of questions do you have? What sort of papers, you know, would you be interested in us looking at? Um, if you can find me at uh, critical O2 on Instagram and you could find me at Phil's critical O2 on Instagram. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was going to say you could find Robbie at, uh, he's not willing to divulge his social media quite yet. <laughs> well, I can. And if people search me out and find me, that's cool. Uh, I just, that's not the end, end goal for me. You know, I just, I just like being on and talking about science. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's awesome. And I will forward any great questions that people have, yeah, uh, you know, to, to you and we'll probably just end up discussing them on the podcast as it is. So, um, yeah, uh, great episode today. Uh, like I said, if you guys have any questions, you know, we're, we're, this is why we started the podcast is to talk science and to do this sort of stuff. So, uh, don't, don't be strangers and, uh, we'll catch you guys in the next one.